0: The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 29. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Conor Hanrity. Our anxious watchmen, Horatio and Marcellus, who have been with us since the beginning of the play, have been vindicated. They're back up on the battlements, having convinced Hamlet to join them and the ghost has indeed appeared. Hamlet has addressed it at length, as we discussed in the previous episode, and the ghost's response is merely to beckon him to come away with him. It's probably worth mentioning at this point that there's another ghost that haunts this play. It's not so much a spectre from the dead as a ghostly earlier play. We have very little evidence for it, but there are enough scraps here and there to suggest that there was an earlier version of the Hamlet story on the Elizabethan stage that cannot plausibly have been written by Shakespeare. There are some who believe this earlier version to have been his, but so thinking requires enough leaps of faith and assumptions that I think it more or less unnecessary. What's of note is that this earlier phantom version of the play is responsible for the inclusion of the ghost. There's nothing in any of the source material to suggest a figure returning from the grave, so this innovation is the work of whoever wrote the earlier version, which is often referred to as the Ur-Hamlet. The play was iconic enough to be included in an offhand comment by Thomas Nash in his address to the gentlemen students of Oxford in the late 1580s, making this earlier hamlet rather too early to have been by our dear Shakespeare. Another Thomas, the writer Thomas Lodge, who himself, by the way, lived a very fascinating life, wrote about this early version of the play in 1596 in his recollection, I think it's something like a memoir almost, called Wits Misery and the World's Madness. He writes about, and I quote, the wizard of the ghost which cried so miserably at the theatre like an oyster wife, Hamlet, revenge. I love this image of an oyster wife shouting like that in the street while she's trying to sell her wares. Regardless who wrote it, what's important is that there was an earlier Hamlet that had caught the imagination, and that one of its most memorable moments was the traumatised, tortured spirit exhorting Hamlet to revenge. With all of this in mind, it's no wonder that Shakespeare might appear to be drawing things out of it in his introduction of this spirit. We are four scenes into the play already, with fabulous language and terrific ideas and drama and tension slowly building up and building up. But if we think we're going to get a fishwife braying for revenge, Shakespeare would be seeming to imply, we have another thing coming. Ever the tease, he hasn't given the ghost a single word to say yet. Indeed, he hasn't even referred to it as a ghost yet. And for now, this poor spectral thing is beckoning Hamlet to come with him, perhaps for some kind of private conference, away from Marcellus and Horatio, who might not be quite worthy of hearing whatever he has to say. Horatio seems to think this too, saying, it beckons you to go away with it, as if it's some impartment to desire to you alone. A lot of the lines here in this section are shared between the speaking characters. There's a sense of urgency and nervousness to the way that they almost talk over each other. Of course, this is to be expected, while the ghost of a former ruler of the country hovers and beckons to one of one's company to depart with it. Marcellus interrupts Horatio's last line with, Look, with what courteous action it waves you to a more removed ground. I love that Marcellus is still a little bit deferential here. Even in the panic of a ghost sighting, he's still impressed that the spirit has retained his manners and nobility to the extent that his courteous action deserves comment. For all that, though, Marcellus and Horatio agree, Hamlet shouldn't budge. Again, they complete each other's lines. But do not go with it. No, by no means. At this point, every one of us in the audience is with Hamlet, Willing him to go with the ghost and see what has happened. Thanks to the preceding centuries of dramatic tradition, some of us probably know what the story is, but this is all right. Even Shakespeare's audience would, we can imagine, have been expecting a ghost clamoring for revenge, for that is what Hamlet the Plague might entail. But even if we think we know, we want Hamlet to go and find out, and so he makes up his mind that he does have to go along. It will not speak then I will follow it. Horatio is not convinced and counsels against. Do not, my lord. And then we get a short but very important few lines from Hamlet himself about himself. Why? What should be the fear? I do not set my life in a pin's fee, and for my soul, what can it do to that, being a thing immortal as itself? It waves me forth again. I'll follow it. All of the preceding exposition in the play has laid the ground for this small moment of decision for Hamlet. He's been depressed and sullen, hanging around in the court now overseen by his rather crass uncle. It's uncomfortable and unpleasant, his mother has married his uncle, and even though he's been proclaimed next in line to the throne, it's all just a bit terrible. And so, when faced with the dilemma of do I or do I not follow this alarming figure, which, as I said, nobody on the stage has yet called a ghost, he weighs his options. He figures that he has nothing to lose. He does not set his life at a pin's fee. In other words, his life doesn't mean as much as a pin to him. So he'll go along and see what happens. And as for his soul, the only thing he might stand to lose if perdition catch it, well, what can the ghost do to it? His soul and the ghost itself are both immortal, so presumably he has nothing to fear. Hamlet may perhaps be being foolhardy because he had nothing to lose, but he's also brave. The courage he shows here will crop up again later throughout the play. Hamlet is mourning, but he is never a coward. For a little more character, Shakespeare seems almost to invite the ghost to be a little bit impatient and encourages some further beckoning which then prompts Hamlet's last line of this little speech. It waves me forth again. I'll follow it. Before Hamlet does leave the stage with the ghost, Horatio has more concerns to share. We aren't going to get a word out of the ghost until Act 1, Scene 5, as Shakespeare teases and manipulates our expectations just as he did those of his original audience. In the next episode, we will complete Act 1, Scene 4. I hope you'll join me then. Thank you for listening, And for a whole wide variety of extra information and indeed bonus materials, please be sure to visit the website, The Hamlet Podcast.